Well, this has been a fascinating series, hasn't it? Winners and losers. And I must say, this is um, great to be with you sharing today because today is the wrap-up of the end of this mini-series, which Chris started so masterfully a couple of weeks ago, looking at winners and losers. And there were some surprising twists in that, weren't there? Because he said, all the world loves a winner. But when you're a loser, you lose alone. But he said that God favors the brokenhearted and the humble. And it's almost a reversal of what the world system is. And then last week, Kev developed this very well by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that it's not many who are wise or influential who are chosen, but it's actually the way that God works is to use the weak to confound the wise. And we looked at how the Jews had really relied on their tradition. Tradition, that's the way the song goes, but that's how they are. They were the chosen people of God. They just sort of had it all. But Paul says to them, that's not the way it is. You've got to choose for yourself, Jesus Christ. The Greeks were really puffed up and proud because they had the wisdom. They were very much the wisdom people. Paul said it's not about the tradition or the wisdom, but it's about Jesus Christ, and it is this reversal. Kev also very interestingly looked at the way we so desperately want to be winners that we will study and have degrees behind our name, and he brought his certificate to show you know, I've really made it in the world site. But you know, in fact, it's not that outer achievement that makes you a winner inside. So this is what we're going to look at today, because the whole of the world system is very much geared up to the exterior package, isn't it? It's all about how you look and how you feel. And I think it's quite extraordinary how we've almost got an obsession with image today. Um, I think of the way that millions and millions are spent in marketing to try and maneuver us into buying certain products, because if you drive that particular car, you're a winner. And that aftershave, you know, you just got to have it because all the girls will swoon. You'll be a winner. Or the girls with their hair shining, you're a winner. It's all about the exterior package. But does that really make you a winner? Well, the advertising people certainly think so, and many people are sucked into that. And I think it's interesting that more and more men, not just women, are looking at things like cosmetic surgery and Botox, because they desperately want to look like winners in order to be winners. It's again that emphasis on the exterior package. And we see these celebrities, and it doesn't seem to matter that they've had 17 failed relationships and that they've been in and out of drug rehab, but if they're eating kale and quinoa, then lettuce is definitely out. I mean, that's just the way it is, isn't it? It's extraordinary. We're sort of trapped into thinking what are winners and what are losers. But what I want to share today is a complete reversal of that. But I do understand that we are all people who love to see losers become winners, don't we? We think of when we little children, the girls sit dewy-eyed at their mother's knee listening to stories about Cinderella. There she was in the cellar, in the darkness, the cold, working among the ashes. Nobody even knew she was there. She was always in tattered clothes and poor. But then, pow, this amazing thing happened. And she was transformed into this dazzling beauty at the ball. 
and the pansom hints and the sugly blisters were astonished at this amazing creature. Yes, she won not only the attention of the handsome pins, handsome hints, the handsome prince, but she won his hand because of her great beauty. All about the exterior passage. But it's not just the girls who go for those stories. What about Clark Kent? Here he was bespeckled, softly spoken, working in the newspaper office long hours. Nobody really took much notice of him. But he went into that telephone box, and then what happened? Va va voom, he emerged with Superman. <laughs> and then he swooped in to rescue the hopeless and to transform it. So we know how the story goes. So we brought up on these myths. No wonder when we get older and the hard knocks of reality come, we find it impossible to really believe the good news of the gospel because it seems too good to be true. Isn't that the stuff that myths and legends are made of? That God would come into our messy lives because of the great love that he has, this unstoppable love, that he would come into where we are and transform the ash into beauty, the weakness into strength. That's what Isaiah wrote thousands of years ago. He transforms ash into beauty. The oil of joy is what he gives us for mourning. The garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. That is the good news. And Jesus Christ is the one who's made it all happen. If you say, it can't apply to me, I'd like to take you through some of the scriptures today, and I'm so glad that I've been given this passage, Romans 8, verse 28, right through to the end of the chapter. Um, it should come up on the screens, but we're gonna take it in three chunks so that we're gonna just break it down bit by bit. So we're starting with Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God knew his people in advance. He chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's us. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Now, if ever there was an account of losers becoming winners, surely, surely this is it. He knew us before the world began. He chose us, he called us, and he put us through Jesus in right standing with himself, and he takes us into his glory. Talk about ashes to glory. This is our story, it's your story, it's my story. Not because of any exterior packaging, but because of what Jesus has done as we believe in him in our hearts. I'm just astounded that this good news of the gospel has come through centuries. It's not just fabrication or myth by some really creative writer. There are 66 books in this Bible, and every one tells of the story of God's unstoppable love through the ages, coming in 
to where we are so that he can transform. It's story after story through life after life of real people, and it's backed by history. It's proven through archaeology and through personal testimony that this is the truth. Now, Chris referred, when he spoke on winners and losers, to Hebrews chapter 12, which I love. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all the forefathers who've gone ahead of us, who by faith believed in this message, we must press on. And I think that it's especially relevant because Paul was writing in the gospel, in, in the book that we're looking at today in Romans, he was writing to the Roman church, the Christians in Rome who were made up of a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. He'd never met them and he was going to visit them in the, in the forthcoming future, but he wanted them to get a sense of his preaching and who he was. So this is the letter that he wrote to the Romans. And it's amazing that, that when we think of this amphitheater that was referred to in the book of Hebrews, the Romans would have known very well about the amphitheater because the Colosseum was in their home city. That's in Rome. So it's almost as if there's a crowd cheering us on by their example, around us, surrounding us, even here, saying, come on, this is the good news. Press in, be all that God wants you to be, and you will experience how he changes losers into winners. You might be thinking, it's definitely not for me because you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it's been in my life. Well, then I can encourage you that the next verses are especially for you. But just remember as we read them, it's not about the exterior package. It's about what's inside. And more important, it's about who is inside. And if it's Jesus Christ in us, living his life through us, we will, in spite of our feelings, in spite of our doubts, we will increasingly become winners in this, in this world. I want to encourage you that, as Chris mentioned, Jesus was very critical of the, the religious leaders who were strutting their stuff because they felt so proud and so arrogant. He called them a bunch of snakes. <laughs> Some of the versions say it rather nicely, you brood of vipers, but it was actually a bunch of snakes. <laughs> and he said, you're like whitewashed sepulchers, full of dead men's bones, like tombs that are all painted nice on the outside, but inside, they're reeking of death and dead men's bones. It's not the exterior, it's the interior. And as I'm standing here even talking to you, I have a great sense of my own inadequacy and failing, my heart's pounding, my mouth goes dry, my knees knock, it's true. But I also realize it's not about me. It's about this amazing Lord who has come into my life and who is changing me daily to being more like him. And this message is not something that I've just dreamt up after eating lots of pasta or something. <laughs> this is the truth. And this really works in lives. It's working in my life, and it's working in all the lives of those who long for him and yearn for him, because that's this incredible transformation he brings about of losers into winners.
I always think that I stand before you like a clean hose pipe <laughs> because I don't want to be plugged up. I want to be able to just freely pour this amazing message of life and transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit, touching everyone in this place, because that's the way the Lord moves. So with that in mind, let's move on to the next verses, and they are verse 31 through to verse 34. Paul continues, having said that we are chosen and that we are foreknown, He says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Wow, I love that. It's almost as if Paul's a bit speechless here, saying, what can we say about this? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? And then I like this. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen as his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. He is interceding for us. We know from scripture that Satan, our enemy, is called the accuser of the brethren and of the sisters. And so often he does come and accuse us. You will never be anything. Sometimes he works through people Maybe our parents, maybe our teachers, maybe our spouse has said, you are a born loser. You'll never amount to anything. And Chris broke that curse on us, remember? I really want to encourage you, if that's where you are, that you've lived your whole life, excuse me, under that lie, today is a turning point for you because that is not the truth. That's not who you are. Just let me read that again. Who dares accuse us because God himself has chosen us for his own. And it says, for Christ died for us. When you read this, put your name there. Christ died for me, Billy, and was raised to life for me, Susie. And he's sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us, for me, Joe. Put your name in scripture because it's written for you and it applies for you. Isn't this amazing news? So often we condemn ourselves. I often have to talk to myself and say, you're not a stupid fool. You can do this. You're not crazy. You keep forgetting things. You can do it because we need to believe what God says about us, not what we think or what other people say then we start to become winners in every situation. As we sit here, I have got such a sense of God's unstoppable love for us. It is a love that is just really pouring out all over here, in me, through me, and around. And it's as if he is cupping your face in his hands and looking at you and saying, I love you. Hands that flung the stars into space loves you. 
gave himself for you and wants you to be all that he's planned, abundant life more than you've ever experienced, a peace that passes anything you can understand, a wisdom that is beyond any kind of learning. Can you see the transformation, how he makes us into winners from within, working out? It's not about outside working in. So whatever situation we find ourselves in, we are not to be swayed because of that outside pressure, but rather, let's just stop and cry out to him, help me, come to me now in Jesus' name, and start to experience that life-giving change. The situation stays the same, but we change because of who is in us. The greater one is in us. It's true that once this begins, life often gets worse and things get sometimes really hard to bear. Many people preach a kind of a gospel. It's a pill, you pop it, pop the gospel, and then everything comes right. You just say, I want a new car, or you say, I want a this. That's not the way scripture has taught us. But in everything around us, no matter what happens, we have a victory because of who is inside of us. The circumstances often don't change, but we do, and that makes us winners. Let's read the next verses now, which is 35 to 39, that's the end of the chapter. Remembering this unstoppable love of God. Who shall separate us, Paul asks, from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That is from Psalm 44 uh, that he's referring to there. And then Paul goes on in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us that unstoppable love. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, whatever's gonna get thrown up at us, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. If there's anything left, he's saying nothing, nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I often think of scripture as a symphony. You get these repeated themes that come over and over. You do get the baddies and the naughty and the, the evil themes, but you get this glorious theme of God's love. And here it's like cymbals crashing and the strings playing and the drums going, and it's just like a, a heavenly host shouting and declaring, nothing can stop that love of God from reaching to exactly, exactly where we are. He has called us, he's chosen us, he knows us by name, he knows the hairs on our head, and his love never stops. His love never stops. This is how we become winners. I think this is specifically powerful 
when you think Paul was writing to the Romans, we know from history, this book was written in AD 57, that Paul wrote this gospel, this, this book, and he was referring to the love of God, but isn't it extraordinary that at this time in Rome, the great might of Rome is when Nero became emperor and hated the Christians, persecuted the Christians. We read so many accounts in history of how the Christians were fed to lions in that great Colosseum. And we know that Christians were used as human torches in Nero's dinner parties. Christians suffered hugely because of their faith. So when he says, what can separate us? These Christians who were reading this letter from Paul, can you imagine them going into the Colosseum to face the lions or being bound up, ready to be torched? These are the very words that you and I have today in our situation. Don't let's be disheartened. Don't let's be discouraged because it's the same amazing truth that Christ in us, no matter what is around us, will bring us into glory. I remember once being in an airplane when there was um, really bad turbulence and I happened to be reading my Bible, but the plane was rocketing up and down like this and there was a very dear little lady next to me. She leaned across and she said, don't worry, dearie, I don't think it's going to get that bad. <laughs> and I thought, why is it that people think it's only when you're desperate that you call on the Lord? But in fact, we call on the Lord always, not whether there's turbulence or not. As we call into him and tap into him, that's when we start experiencing the power of God even in that place of darkness or ash or depression. I honestly remember being very, very afraid once flying. My late husband John and I had a Cessna 210, uh, which was a six-seater little aeroplane, and we left Johannesburg and we flew to Cape Town by night. So we had our four children sleeping in the back and off we went up and we were flying along and there was just blackness all around us and a few little instruments on the panel. And my heart really started to fail me and I started to panic and think, wow, you know, here we are, a little blip right up in a black sky. Wow, this is scary. And I started thinking of this verse, neither height nor depth, because we were being bounced around, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And I remember thinking how concrete this was that my situation was still the same. But as we flew the rest of that time down to Cape Town, which is nearly a thousand miles, we were rejoicing and praising God and thanking him for that unstoppable love. I also remember scuba diving in Mozambique, night dive, again, we went into this inky black sea and I love night dives because you can see all the luminance of these amazing corals and fish that by day look spectacular with the colors, but by night, it's absolutely awesome. <clears throat> there was a moment of panic where I thought, it's just black, 
What happens if my buddy deserts me and I'm here alone in this big sea and there's sharks? Again, I thought of this verse, nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm giving you just two examples, but what I want to share is no matter what your situation, maybe your marriage is at an all-time low, maybe that child of yours is back in drugs, Maybe your boss just doesn't understand and you believe you're going to be fired or maybe you've battled with an illness. Whatever your situation, know this. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, nothing. And when his love is strong in us, you'd be surprised at the healing that comes, that the deep down sense of well-being that comes and how we are transformed because of that love in us. It's not the exterior circumstances, but it's the change inside of us. So we are winners because of who is in us bringing about his perfect plan. All things work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's how we started off Romans 8, 28. And Paul, we read, the same Paul who was writing to the Romans, wrote another amazing letter to the Philippians where he says, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Do you know where he was writing that from? It wasn't on a sandy white beach in Skiathos. It was in prison. He was beaten, nearly dead, thrown into prison, rat infested, no food, no light, urine around, stinky prison. He wrote some of the most amazing letters. That's a winner, isn't it? That's a winner. Not the external trappings. I think it's good if we go to gym. I think it's great that we work out so we can climb the mountains and swim the streams. But if you're going to gym just so you have a finely honed body with a sprayed on leotard that you can strut around and think I'm a winner, you're not. It's not about that. Do you get the picture? Christ in you, that's our hope of glory. And as I close and we're leading up to Easter, it's just such a glorious time. I want to refer to some of the synoptic gospels here. The message of Easter, which is all about God's unstoppable love coming and transforming us into winners. It's an incredible story. And Kev and Chris referred to the mercy seat, and I just want to sort of elaborate a little bit on that mercy seat, because I went home from those services, and I thought, you know, it is like an old-fashioned Pentecostal thought of the mercy seat. People sing about that with the squash boxes. But you know, this mercy seat went all the way through the wilderness. It was in the wilderness uh, with the Israelites in the desert, and it was led into Jordan, into the promised land, and it's a golden rectangular box overlaid with gold with two cherubim facing each other. And it was really a powerful symbol of the presence and the glory of God. You can imagine it just shimmering in the sunlight, but nobody just touched it or made a joke of it because people literally dropped dead. 
That's how seriously it was viewed. When the temple was built, this beautiful temple built in Jerusalem, there was the outer court and there was the inner court, and then there was this inner holiest of holies, and a big curtain separated that mercy seat which was inside from the rest, from the holy place and the rest where the rabble went and where the priests went. Once a year, the high priest went into the holiest of holies, into behind the curtain to where that mercy seat was. You can read all about this in the scriptures. I mean, it's just fascinating. Exodus 26 actually describes a lot about that curtain. To me, it's extraordinary because when the high priest went in once a year to make special asking God for forgiveness, so that there could be this right relationship with him. It was on the Day of Atonement, at one moment. That's when he went in. And he had to sprinkle the blood of goats and of bulls on that mercy seat. But it was such a big thing. I mean, people held their breath outside because the priest went in, and this was the powerful place where God's presence was in such an intense way. Do you know what happened? When the high priest, if you look at his garments in the Old Testament, they sewed bells around the bottom of his garments so that they could hear that he was moving around behind the curtain. Because if he dropped dead behind the curtain and the bells stopped, they would really be in trouble. Nobody wanted to go in there to get him out. They were so terrified of this mercy seat. They tied a rope around the leg of the high priest, this is true, so that when he went into the holiest of holies, they could actually hear him. There was the incense, he was sprinkling the blood, asking God for forgiveness and at one moment. If he did die, they could pull him out by the rope. So I'm telling you all of this because it's very significant. This curtain that we read about in Exodus 26, where the mercy seat was. And by the way, do you know what was in the mercy seat? We have got time just quickly. Inside that mercy seat, I love it. There are three items of great importance. One was the 10 commandments, the actual tablets, which was given to Moses. We know the 10 commandments, we rattle them off, but basically the first five are our relationship with God, and the next five are our relationship with each other. So the Ten Commandments, the tablets were in there. Secondly, there was a jar of manna. I love that because the children of Israel were fed fresh manna every day. They had to rely on the miracle-working God. And God never wanted them to forget. He wanted them to know their laws of how to live, but he wanted to always remind them of the supernatural power that he could feed them he could supply and look after them. That was the manna. The third thing was the rod of Aaron, the high priest, which was like a staff. And I love the fact that this rod, which was like a stiff wooden pole, was budding. Again, God's miracle, that out of something that looks dead, he can bring new life. So that's what was inside. We have all of that today, every day, the supernatural supply of God. But this is what was in the mercy seat, and there was this thick curtain. Exodus 26 said it 40 cubits high. Wow, 60 foot. That's like 20 meters of thick curtain. 
It's described as being as thick as a man's hand. It was woven so thick. So this curtain was pretty heavy going with gold. Let's have a look at Matthew 27, verse 51, Mark 15, 38, and Luke 23, 45. At the moment when Jesus was crucified, what happened? That curtain, the thick curtain in the holiest of holies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Isn't that exciting? There was no man up a ladder pulling. He couldn't. <laughs> it wasn't from the bottom up. People trying to get to God through this, through that. It was God ripping open the most holy place. And this is verified by history. All of this is verified by history. God opened that curtain amazingly so that we could have access. We could have fellowship with him forever, you and me. Unstoppable love. So, can you start to see that you are not a loser? Nobody's condemning, nobody's accusing you because God has called you, he has chosen you. He has a plan for your life. You are chosen, you are called, you've been put into right standing with God. He's giving you and me his glory. So, nobody can say, I can't make it, we can. I know that many people feel they are down and outers, but you get up and outers too. People who think they're something great, but they're out if they haven't got Jesus. Not about the, what you look like, how you speak, where you were educated. It's all about your heart and who you are. And God reaches to your life right now. He's cupping your hands, his, your face in his hands and saying, I love you. And as I close, just let's bask in that. We are chosen, we are called, and we are more than conquerors. Not just for now, but for eternity. Let's pray. Loving Father God, as the band comes up, please. Loving Father God, we come into your presence with such gratitude. And Lord, I ask if there's anyone here today who's never known the abundant life or the peace that passes understanding or the wisdom from God, that they would turn to you now, open themselves and say, come to me, Lord Jesus. And the cross, which is the great cosmic key that unlocks peace and joy and life and forgiveness will come in full measure. In Jesus' name, amen.